Hey, uh, good morning. It's Jordan here, and I'm so glad to be joining you all across the city of Montreal this morning online. I'm going to start this morning off with a question. When was the last time you felt despair? I was able to speak with someone uh, this week who shared some of their experience with me. They spoke of a struggle getting out of bed in the morning, that even doing something like brushing their teeth was a fight, that the thought of calling a friend was, well, they didn't want to do that because that would, that would put a burden on them. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Um, maybe COVID-19, maybe this pandemic has given you a bit of a taste of what something like that would feel like. Or maybe you've at least felt the, the sort of despair over, not that, but maybe despair over circumstances that felt helpless. Things like chronic illnesses, um, injustices, things that go on and on, like racism and poverty. Um, I don't know if you've maybe felt that, or um, I've certainly felt despair over people in my life who, because I loved, I wanted them to change, and I pray for them, and I pray for them, and I, and I haven't seen change. Maybe you felt despair over that, or maybe you felt despair in relation to some of the things that we've talked about in previous sermons about fighting sin, that you're fighting your sin, and that you, you find that it, it keeps rearing its ugly head, it keeps reoccurring, and you begin to feel a, a despair creeping in about that. So I don't know when the last time you faced despair was, but nonetheless, it's an experience we sort of all have. And um, what we're talking about pretty generally here, that experience of feeling despair, um, while we're talking about it generally, what Paul does in uh, the text that we're looking at today is he actually zooms in. He looks specifically at a particular type of despair, and that is the despair that is faced by a Christian. That the Christian life is hard. That the Christian life is, it, it's difficult. That, well, we live for a king, Jesus, right? Who, well, at best, many people believe is a mere prophet. At worst, don't even believe he existed. And that can be hard. We live for the values of a kingdom that have been described as upside down. That generosity is greater than greed. That weakness is triumphs over power. That humility is over pride. And yet those values, they're very countercultural. That can be difficult. And so there have been people that we we know, that we love, that we've we've served this, that we've we've sung alongside, who've at one point just they've thrown in the towel and they said, It's too much, right? I I can't do this. it's it's just too hard. You know, I'm out. And it's at that moment where, where we sort of ask ourselves that same question. Is it worth it? Is the Christian life worth it? And this is the question that Paul is getting into addressing sort of today through what he writes in, in Romans chapter 8, these verses. We're in a sermon series called Undeservingly Enabled, all about how life in the Spirit enables us to press on. And so in these verses, Paul wants to set our vision bigger and wider to, to the point that our hearts lying on that sort of dark bed of despair are raised up in hope again so we can set our feet to press on 
for Jesus. Because what we need in despair is hope, which is what this text brings. That one, Christian hope outweighs all hardship. That two, it encompasses more than we can ever imagine. It's wide. And three, it's a way of living resiliently. So the worth, the width, and the way of hope. That's what we'll be looking at today. So first, the worth of hope. We see this in verse 18. I'll read it. Romans 8 and verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so like I mentioned at the beginning, Paul is not just talking about the universal experience of suffering. He's, he's really sort of zooming in and narrowing in a, a specific type of suffering. Um, last week we saw in the previous verse how uh, as children of God that we are heirs of God. And then that verse reads on, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. You see that in the Christian worldview here, that suffering and glory, they're sort of inextricably linked. But the question in our context then is, it becomes, well, what does it mean to suffer with him? What is it to suffer with Christ? Well, it's, it's to walk the path he walked. That Jesus walked a path that actually... <laughs> There is a place in Jerusalem you can walk today. It's called the, the Via Della Rosa. That's the path. It means the path of suffering or the way of suffering. That's the path that Jesus walked as he carried his cross approaching death. And Jesus even told his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That to follow Jesus is to deny yourself. It is to take up your cross. It is to, to, to walk that Via Della Rosa. And as we walk that Via Della Rosa, we, as we walk behind him in obedience, we'll find Jesus taking us places that we don't really want to go. <laughs> and oh, the struggle when Jesus takes us a place that we don't want to go. When he asks of us something to deny something that we don't want to give. When we were doing the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality chapter, um, this is a few months back, um, called Going Back to Go Forward, we, Sandra and I, we, we use the cupboards in our houses as sort of, if you've been to our place, you'll know that we do this. They double as sort of a giant whiteboard. And so on one part of it, we did sort of uh, significant messages that we had received in our upbringing or that we had sort of uh, absorbed in our own lives, and so we wrote out messages about like how do we relate to other cultures, um, how do you respond to conflict, uh, what is your um, view of what it means to be successful. And what's interestingly enough is both our views of success were were the same. The same. It was success as security. So not likes, uh, not you know power, not wealth or whatever. It was really success as security. So my uh, you know, <laughs> vision in life or my, my view of success in life was to uh, work to a point that we were financially independent. We'd be able to move outside of the city, have a nice house. Uh, because of this, because of this financial independence, my wife wouldn't have to work. It's, it's not that she couldn't work. She just didn't need to work, this kind of thing. And uh, we would take noteworthy vacations. <laughs> 
then we're good, right? See, th- this was security. This is, this is my view of what success was. And oh, the struggle when Jesus said, you have to give that to me. Was it reasonable of him to ask that of me? Yes. Had he asked of others far more? Well, yes. Could you even call this suffering? Hardly. And yet, it was so difficult for me to give that to him. Why was it difficult? Well, that because following Jesus on that Via Della Rosa, that path of suffering, well, because of where it takes you, that that path of suffering is ultimately a path of self-denial. It's a path of self-death. That Jesus turns to, to different aspects of ourselves and say, you might have to die to this. You might have to die to this dream or this vision or this ambition in order to follow me. And this can be hard because there are, there are, there are good things. There are celebrated things. There are perfectly fine things that Jesus might ask of us. Jesus himself said that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. And what he's saying is these dreams and these aspirations and these visions of success in our lives, that unless we surrender them to him, unless we bury them with him, that we will not be able to grow up and bear fruit in him. See, there's nothing wrong. They're good, celebrated things. There's nothing wrong with security in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with comfort in and of itself. But pursuing those things in such a way, right, it was getting in the way Pursuing security, getting in the way of finding Jesus as my ultimate security, the one who I put my confidence in. Pursuing comfort. It was getting in the way, that vision of it in my life was getting in the way of allowing the Holy Spirit to be what he describes, which is the comforter. And so it had to go. It had to go so that I could grow up in him, so I could bear fruit in him. And so Jesus calls us, as you can see, to die to all sorts of things as we walk behind him in the path of obedience. And we we get to this point where we're like, okay, okay, no, 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 Lord, not there, right, right? Not, (laughs) Not this mountain struggle of faith, not this, this, this wilderness of temptation, not this don't take me through the valley of the shadow of death for you. No, Lord. And yet, where does he want to take you? Has it been a struggle? Is it going to cost you something? (laughs) It's worth it. This is what the text says. That our spirit breathe text says there is a greater glory. That Jesus doesn't just call us. He doesn't just ask us to deny ourselves in order to make us suffer. It's because he wants to offer us so much more. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying, I've considered, I've worked it out, I've done the math, and there is no comparison. (laughs) Jesus taught, right, that the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in the field, and with joy he sells everything he had in order to obtain and buy that treasure, with the field with that treasure in it. And so, selling everything we have, giving over everything that Jesus might ask of us, is worth it for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's a treasure that's of immeasurable worth that Jesus 
has for us. But we might say to Paul, like, yo, (laughs) you just don't get it. I mean, the sort of things that Jesus is asking me to deny, the suffering that he's taking me through, the real life suffering he's taking me through. I mean, this is trivializing to it. To, to just say there's some greater glory up there in heaven somewhere. Well, not only is it just sort of pie in the sky by and by up there. We, we'll speak to that in a minute. But Paul would say, say no, this is, this is not some trivializing, patronizing nonsense. This is not, you know, let them have their cake sort of thing. No, Paul, he knew suffering. He, he knew what it was like to be betrayed, to be shipwrecked, to be beaten, to be in jail, all for the sake of Jesus, all for the sake of his faith in Jesus. He knew suffering, but he also knew Jesus. And so he doesn't trivialize it. No, the sufferings of this present time are real. But he says at the same time, the glory to come is that good. It's not even worth comparing. And so... This gives us reason to follow Jesus when it's hard. That there's, It's worth it to deny ourselves. It's worth it to take up that cross and follow him down the Via Della Rosa. Because of the hope. But what is this hope that is worth it? What is this glory that Paul is referring to? And this becomes our second point. The width of hope. And we see this from verse 19 to verse 23. The width of hope is Paul referring to a renewed creation, one that reflects the glory of God. In other words, that the hope we have reaches far wider than we ever would have dared believe. And yet, what is this hope of renewed creation that Paul speaks of? In order for us to understand that, well, we first need to understand, well, what sort of have gone wrong with it? And so let's get into our text. Romans 8 and verse 19. It reads, for the creation waits with eager longing. And then in verse 22 it says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. And so here we see creation as personified as groaning and eagerly waiting. In what? It says, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. And you think about it, well, yeah, because we as humans, we are creatures, we are part of creation. And Paul is personifying creation as a woman, this is the image that he gives here, as a woman who is in labor, a woman who is about to give birth, and she's eagerly waiting, and she is longing, and she is groaning for something to, pray, pr- to take place, right? The, the baby pushing down, the hope and expectancy of new life. There's blood, and there's sweat, and there's tears. And if you've ever been in a delivery room, there's this groan. <laughs> there's this groan that goes with it that's unmistakable. <laughs> and Paul is saying, like, this groan, This groan is a lot like the groan of creation and all its expectancy and all of its hope. It's eagerly waiting. And maybe, well, maybe you've never been in the delivery room. Maybe you've never grown, known the groan of childbirth. Maybe the only groan you've known is, you know, the groan of your knee or the groan of uh, coming off, off, you know, the sidewalk, the concrete into your Montreal apartment. You step on the stairs and it, It creaks, it groans under the weight of your foot. 
But Paul is saying here, creation is groaning in all its intensity, right? In all its eagerness, in hope, awaiting its renewal. Well, for what? For what's gone wrong? Verse 20, it says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from the bondage, its bondage to corruption. Now, that's a thick text. This is a thick text, I'm, but, tr- but track with me here. It says that what's gone wrong is that creation has been subjected to futility, that it's in a sort of bondage to corruption, that the created order, what we f- you know, refer to as the cosmos, the, you know, the planets, our planet, right, and us on it, we're stuck in a sort of cycle of corruption and decay and death. In other words, it's not supposed to be this way. No, it says it was subjected to futility, right? That it's, it's not operating at its full potential, that there's, there's a, a lack of fruitfulness, that there's a lack of harmony, a lack of beauty compared to how it was supposed to be. And yet, who did this to creation? Well, it says, him who subjected it to futility. Who's that? Well, what we find here is that Paul is hyperlinking. And so, in this text of Romans 8, he's referring all the way back to a text at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, where it describes how God creates humanity, and he puts them in a life-permitting and protected environment, something that we call a garden. And in that garden... It talks about how God tasks humanity. He gives them the vocation of extending the, the goodness and the beauty of that garden outwards. <laughs> like kings on mission, bringing, leading like all of cr- creation in this chorus of praise. I mean, it's this wonderful vision. And the picture that is used to describe this, the vocation that is given, is that of, of gardening. And yet, what we find in that garden is those humans, they see the goodness and the beauty of the garden and of themselves, and they choose that over God. They want to be self-determining. The way you could describe it is that they choose to worship the creation and themselves, so creatures, over the creator. That's actually the words that the Bible uses to describe that. And so what do we find is that humans, they rebel against God. And so God has no choice but to send them out of the place of his blessing, out of the place of his presence, out of the place of this protected, life-flourishing environment. And so God removes the blessing on the ground. And it's described as, a, as being cursed. I find this really fascinating. The, um, the wording in the original Hebrew. Let me just give you a touch of this. So the word for, for uh, humanity is Adam. You've probably heard that before. But the word for ground is Adama. And the, these two words, Adam to Adama, uh, signify the sort of harmony and the resonance that's meant to take place between these relationships. Just like man is is and woman is Isa. But what you find is that when man is sent out of the place of God's blessing. The curses that come in, they bring dissonance and they bring fracturing between these relationships that were meant to be harmonious. So between Is and Esau, men and woman, there's a, a fracturing that comes in and between the 
earth in us as earthlings, there's a fracturing and a dissonance that comes in. And that's described, that's, that's conveyed in the curse that God has removed his blessing from the ground. And so our work of it becomes toil. The ground is described, the illustration is, is that it produces thorns. It's difficult. That creation is subjected then, if we were to answer our question, creation is subjected to futility then by God. That he's the only one who has the power to do that. And why would he do it? Well, it's because of what we did. That we rejected him. Rather than filling creation, cultivating, carrying it, leading it in this chorus of praise. We exploit it. We worship it instead. And so the consequence, here's, here's the takeaway from everything I'm saying. That the consequences of our sin are greater than we think. The consequences of our sin are much, you could say, almost wider than we think. Than much of what we experience in this life. Things that we understand, not just to be moral wrongs, the, 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 the struggles between humanity, but even things that are sort of natural, if you would have it. Things like the coronavirus, right? Connected with human sin entering the world. That creation is subject to death and decay in a way it wasn't before human sin entered the world. But we are promised... That creation will be set free. It will be set free from its bondage. That we can have hope that while the consequences of our sin are greater, they are wider than we might have imagined, the glory to come is far more than we could have ever hoped. Let's go back into the text. Verse 21. In hope, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So uh, we've seen what this looks like now. And obtain the glory of the freedom of the children of God. And then in verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so last week, we saw how when Jesus, what Jesus does is he, he takes our slavery to sin and he gives us his position as a son. And what this does is it actually frees us from sin and it makes us children of God. And what that makes possible is that now the spirit of the living God can come in and transform us and change us from the inside out. And so when it's talking about us having inwardly the sort of first fruits here, that this this is what Paul is talking about. And this is, this is a glorious sort of inward thing. That when we talked about last week, as children of God, that we are, we are loved into the Father's family. That we are liberated from sin, slavery, to fear. That we are lavished with his glory. I mean, these are all the felt experiences of what the inward work of the Spirit can bring. And yet, Paul only describes this as the first fruits. In other words, it's the first little bit that you get on the tree that indicates that there is a harvest to come, the glory to come. Tim Keller describes it like this, that there is a glory that is coming that will be so blindingly powerful that when it falls on us, it will envelop the whole created order and glorify it along with us. 
We will bring nature with us into a renewed, restored, redeemed reality. Our sonship will be publicly revealed and acknowledged, and we will finally and fully be conformed to the likeness of the Son. That's Jesus. We will be perfectly holy as Christ and dazzlingly beautiful as he is. That's what glory is, and that is the harvest to come. This is what it means for the sons of God to be revealed. That those who know and love Jesus will become at last fully themselves, as God defines it, fully human, fully reflecting and carrying out the goodness and the beauty of the garden into the world, ruling and reigning with Christ and in this harmonious relationship between God and each other in our environment. I mean, this is one glorious picture, the revealing of the sons of God. And just in case you're thinking, well, that's superhuman-centric, because I am talking about what's going to happen to humans here. But no, humanity, if you think about it, humanity is not the center. Humans are not even the pinnacle of the glory to come. The pinnacle of the glory to come is Jesus himself because he's earned the glory by going to the cross. In the Gospel of John, you see the cross is the place where Jesus is represented of sort of ascending the throne. It is the place in which the glory of God is revealed through all its pain and all its brokenness and all its suffering. That This is the place where glory begins to break out. See, only God could subject creation to its futility. Only God can be the one who sets it free. We, all, what did we bring? All we brought to creation was, was our sin. All we were able to produce were, were thorns. And yet we find that Jesus, right, he, he wears a crown of thorns. He wears our curse to the cross. So that what? So that we could, by his resurrection, not produce thorns anymore, but actually bring about fruit in this world. And so it is God who has subjected it to futility. It is God who will ultimately set it free. And so it is God who gets the glory. And yet all of this, man, the stuff that we see inside of us is just the bit, the just the bit of the, it's a first fruit of the real first fruit who is Jesus. The real first fruit who is Jesus and his resurrection. That when we follow him, man, we follow him down this Via Della Rosa, but we also follow him through the cross and then through to the redemption of our bodies. N.T. Wright says that God will do for the whole of creation at last what he did for us, what he, sorry, what he did for Jesus at Easter. Taking the physical reality that had been broken and smashed beyond belief, rescuing and restoring it so it wasn't just in the same state before it was actually renewed having gone beyond the reach of corruption and decay altogether. And so this becomes the hope that we have as Christians, that the resurrection of Jesus, everything he's done for us, becomes this, this lens which we read all our hope through, that God is making all things new, that he will promise not to renew just us, but all of creation. I mean, this is a glory become beyond what we can ever imagine. This is the width of the glory of God. This is the width of the gospel. This is the width of the hope that we have. And so this is why Paul says this cannot be compared to the suffering that we're experiencing now. That was a lot of theology. 
But let me say this. Is your vision of God wide enough? Is your understanding of the gospel capacious enough to contain this? Is it big enough to believe that God will renew all of creation? I mean, <laughs> I struggle to think through this, at, you know, at times that the, you know, the plants and the trees and even some way those things that are done according to the purposes of God in, in this, the work that we do, that our labor is in vain, that, that buildings and, and bookcases and like even this book, the Concordance de la Bible, like in some way, these things are going to be renewed by God. <laughs> See, we have a reason. I mean, <laughs> we have a reason for our hope. And this is the resurrection of Jesus. And that inner transformation that we see, that we spoke about last week, the first fruits that I've been referring here, these are only the first fruits. These are only the sort of guarantee, evidence of the harvest to come. That our God is big enough, that he is good enough and so this is the worth of our hope it's wide enough to encompass more than we can ever imagine it outweighs all the suffering that we experience in this present age right and so how does this change our lives now what does it look like to live in light of this hope of the renewal of all creation and so this comes to our last point We've seen the worth of hope, the width of hope, and now the way of hope. This is verse 23 to 25. First is that we wait eagerly, and then we wait patiently. First, eagerly. We see this in verse 23, that we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What does this look like? Well, to wait eagerly, is to be ready, right? It's not to be apathetic. No, we're eager. We're ready for the kingdom of God to come. And as we wait in eagerness, it's, there's this fire that is sort of kindled. Eagerness is a sort of fire, this eager waiting. It, it stirs in us faith that brings that future into the present, if you would have it. And so we don't live for the kingdoms of this world. No. <laughs> we begin to see that future reality in the present by living for it now. And so in other words, while we might live in the dominion of Canada, we live for a different kingdom. While we might live in some quasi sort of sense under a prime minister, we actually live for a greater prime minister and king. <laughs> Verse 24 says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes? And what he sees, right? We're, we, our hope is, is not in what we see. It's not in the kingdom of this world. See, don't place your hope in what is seen. Don't place your hope in comfort. Don't ho- place your hope in reputation. Don't place your hope in visions like success that I was speaking of. Because if you place your hope in that, if you place your hope in the now, if you place your hope in what is seen, that's all transient. In a sense, that will all be taken away. No, place your hope in what is to come. Place your hope in the kingdom of God. That is sure. That is guaranteed. That is as sure as Easter morning. 
And what we find is that the suffering that we experience, the difficulties that we go through, the ways in which Jesus calls us to deny ourselves begins to create an intensification of desire, right? It, it increases those longings for the kingdom to come. Ray Ortland writes it like this, that we stop caring about all the wrong things. We are released when we face suffering. We are released from the bondage to earthly imperatives and intensified in our yearnings for eternal things. In suffering, we can discover how sweet God really is. God wants to intensify through the things that we're experiencing in this life, in, in living for his king and his kingdom now, in denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. God is using that to intensify our longings for the kingdom that is to come. And as we do that, as we wait eagerly in faith for his kingdom to come, we start to see that breaking into the here and now, now. This is the glorious hope that we have, that the groan that we face, the groan that we have, the groan of all creation will one day be replaced with a song. And so practically this means, right, if we're talking about the redemption of our body, right, he he promises, the verse was talking about, um, was referring to in hope, the redemption of our bodies. That means that in the present, there's a way with which we treat our body that's different. That our body isn't just sort of this this sack of meat that we don't care about. No, matter matters. Our body matters and how we treat our body matters. This is why there's so much in the biblical text about how we live holy lives before Jesus. It has implications on things like sexual ethics. It has implications on how we treat one another. That we love our bodies because one day they will be redeemed it also has implications on how we treat this planet that this planet is not groaning for its its destruction it's groaning for its renewal not god's not just going to crumple it up you know and and throw it out in the trash no it will be renewed not scrapped and so there's a way with which we relate to this planet right that's different as we look forward to that there's also a way in which looking forward to that, that kingdom of God that's to come, that we begin to bring some of those values into the present, that we live in, in view of a glorious unity between all people, tribes, tongues, and nature, uh, nations. And that works itself out into the way that we do church, that, that we live in anticipation, in eager longing of the mercy and the justice and the glory that will be in heaven in the present. And so we, we work for ra- racial reconciliation. We work for justice. We work in ministries of mercy. All of this is because of what this promise is, the, this, this hope that we have. And so this is the way of hope to live with these things in mind, to live with these values. And so we wait eagerly. And we also wait patiently. We wait patiently. We see this in verse 24. For this hope we are saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope at all. For who hopes in what they already have? But if we hope in what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, waiting eagerly and waiting patiently, these things can seem like a contradiction, right? There's a sort of maybe tension to them. 
But what Paul is saying by waiting patiently means that we're not giving in to despair. We're not giving in to complaining. (laughs) There's a a phrase that the Bernier family, that Jess uses with her kids. He says, she likes to tell it when the kids are whining. She says, patience is waiting without whining. And I think maybe some of us need to hear that today, that patience is waiting without whining. That God's ways and God's timing can be frustrating to us. We can be tempted to complain. We can can be tempted to give, give in to the despair that we talked about earlier. And this might be how you're feeling right now. You might be going through a season of despair about what God is doing in your own life. You might be going in through a season of despair about what God is doing in our wider lives, in this world. I mean, the coronavirus yesterday passed uh, 17 million infections. The economy, we had numbers just come out. It's shrinking at historic proportions. Racial tensions and injustices, right? They're manifestly visible in our streets. That's how bad it is. And it's so easy when we see these injustices, when we see the situation in our world, for us to have despair, for us to complain. And yet, in the midst of this, what does this text remind us? That there is hope. That the resurrection of Jesus from the dead means that God has overcome the futility. He has overcome the death and decay. He has overcome the bondage that we have to sin. That these chains did not hold him down. No, there is freedom and there is hope in Jesus. That the earth Man, like the body of Jesus, and our bodies, like the body of Jesus, will be incorruptible. I mean, what sort of material reality will this be? I mean, we in this will be able to see and touch and taste and smell. Ray Orland, he talks about, he gives this example. He's like, look down at your fingerprints. He's like, see those fingerprints? You will be able to In the new heavens and earth, in the renewed earth, you will, with these fingerprints, be touching things there. But the ultimate hope isn't just of a renewed body. The ultimate hope isn't just of a renewed heavens and earth. The ultimate hope that we have is these fingerprints going up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, can I touch the hands that redeemed me? And Jesus will say, yes, yes, see the scars in my hands as I took on the sins of the world for you, my child. (laughs) And so Jesus, we find, is the ultimate hope of heaven that we have. And he will lift our weary hearts up. We can look to him in our despair. Will you look to Jesus in your despair? As we wait, as we hope, as we follow the way of hope, let us follow the way of hope with, with eagerness, not giving in to apathy. But let us follow the way of hope also with patience, not giving in to despair. This is what God has for us today. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that we look forward to a glorious promise in a future in you. That one day you will renew me, that you will renew this entire earth by your power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit will come and make all things new. And so help us to wait in that promise. Help us to take hold of it now. 
Increase our faith for this Jesus. Thank you for this vision that you raise our heads to see. We love you. Help us to live it out in our bodies and in our world now. In Jesus' name, amen. And so um, we've prepared some discussion questions for you. You might be watching this um, with one other person. You might be watching this with no one. You might be watching this with a group of people. We've been encouraging people to get together to watch the Sunday uh, service online together. Um, But if you're alone, maybe you could call up somebody to go through these or uh, sort of journal them out. The discussion questions are this. How does, the first one, how does the restoration of the earth impact the way you see God, the gospel, and yourself? And the second one, when was the last time you faced despair in your Christian walk? Next time, what steps could you take to remind yourself of the hope we have in Christ? Thank you so much for watching this morning. And over to our uh, closing and sending.